Yesterday, when our time ended, we were talking about unconditional election. The idea that God uh, decided before the beginning of the world that only a certain number would be saved, whether of men or angels, and that the rest are to be lost. They're called the reprobates, or the unelect. And in conjunction with that, of course, he, he predestined. That is, uh, he applied this matter of foreordination and, uh, and election to the individuals. He individually picked them out as being the elect. And we talked yesterday about that just a little bit. Let me, let me really uh, bring that section to a close by suggesting this. We said the other day that that word predestined or foreordained means what? Do you remember? It's from that Greek word pro-horizo, a, a prefix which is really a preposition at the beginning, meaning beforehand. But then what's the horizo remind you of? Yeah, the horizon, the boundary. That's right. And that's what God did in predestining. He, he established the bounds of salvation in Christ. And that's what Ephesians 1 is showing us. It's showing us that uh, all the blessings that God planned and eventually brought to pass were in Christ. That if any person wants to enjoy those, it's not a matter of being one that God has picked out of a hat or picked out of a number. It's a matter of exercising free will in obedience to the gospel to enter into Christ, to enter into union or relationship with him, to enjoy the blessings that God has established even before the beginning of the world. And Christ came to procure for us through his death, resurrection, and intercessory work at God's right hand. So, it's just like the lining off of a baseball field, as we said the other day. First baseline, second baseline, pitcher's mound, batter's boxes. That lines it off, but that doesn't establish exactly which players are going to hit a foul ball or who's going to step out of bounds uh, when he shouldn't. But it does tell you where a person has to step or where the ball has to go to be declared foul as opposed to fair. Tells you that. Well, that's what God did. God established the bounds. And I suggested here in the outline that the conditions of salvation in reality are the bounds. In Christ, yes. But who is in Christ? Not everybody's in Christ. It's those who exercise faith in obedience and meet the conditions that the New Testament establishes. One of those is obedience. Jesus said, not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, but he that does the will of my Father. Matthew seven twenty one. Another is repentance. Of course, that's just obedience to a particular requirement. But God commands all people everywhere to repent. Acts 17.30. Another is baptism. And I don't need to go through all of these because you're familiar with them. I'm just illustrating for our benefit 
But these have to do with the bounds that God has established. Now, one of them, or really the last two, I would give a little bit of attention to, that if a person wants to stay within the boundaries or within the bounds, he's going to have to keep in memory, as Paul said in writing to the Corinthians, or continue in the faith, as he said to the Colossians. Now, why would Paul write that and make it conditional? He didn't just say, uh, this is a good thing for you to do so that you'll be uh, examples to others. He said, by which you are saved if you keep in memory. And then when writing to the Colossians in Colossians 1, 23 and following, uh, why did he say, uh, if you continue in the faith? Grounded and settled. So you see a continuance is required uh, in order to stay within the bounds or the boundaries that God has established. And that's the meaning of the word predestined. It means to see, to set the bounds ahead of time. Pro horizo. All right? Now somebody says, well, doesn't, doesn't that really mean that God predestined a group of people to be saved, those in Christ. Well, in reality, that's what it amounts to. Because any time you set the requirements ahead of time, that determines who can be. It's just like a, a man setting up his business. And he says, now, to work in this business, you're going to have to have this and this and this and this. These are requirements that are must to do this kind of work. Okay, Is he deciding ahead of time the names of his employees? No. But he's deciding the kind of person, the kind of employee he's going to need. And that's what the Lord was doing. He was establishing the kind of person, the person who's willing to put his faith in Christ and then act upon that faith in obedience to the gospel and continue in faith. That's the kind of person. And in effect, that tells you the group, that is, the church, those who would be willing to do that throughout their lives. That brings us then to this matter of limited atonement. That Jesus died just for the elect. I suggested to you the other day that if you're not a pure Calvinist, a strict Calvinist, you don't even give lip service to this one anymore. This one is dropped out of the system as far as most of the evangelical uh, Christians are concerned. I put that in quotation marks. Of course, that's what they call themselves. I don't believe they've done what the New Testament teaches they need to do to become Christians. But they talk about being evangelical Christians. Well, most of them don't believe that Jesus died just for the elect. They believe that there's a need to preach the gospel to people. And uh, the gospel, of course, is God's means of determining who they are, who the elect are. But now, also involved in this idea of atonement that Jesus made for sin, at least in the, in the Calvinistic definition, is the imputing of the quality and the character of Christ's righteousness to the elect. And we talked about that a little bit yesterday. Um, the Bible nowhere teaches simply a transfer 
of Jesus' righteousness, his perfect righteousness, his sinlessness to anybody. The Bible nowhere talks about it or addresses it in that fashion. That it just that's his transfer. The Bible does talk about a justification, uh, not of works, that is not based upon perfect works or perfect keeping of the law. Uh, a works, uh, excuse me, a justification that the Lord grants or gives in Jesus Christ to those who exercise obedient faith in him. Romans 3, Romans 4, both talk about that. But nowhere do you find the Bible teaching that God will just award you with the perfection of Christ. He'll just scoot that over and apply it to you. Now the Bible teaches this. The Bible teaches, for instance, that Jesus... uh, Jesus lived a perfect life and that that perfect life qualified him to die as the perfect sacrifice. It teaches that. You know, even under the law, God didn't want any tainted sacrifices, did he? He didn't want any uh, lambs with broken legs or blind or otherwise polluted or defiled. And that, of course, was a picture of what he planned to give when he gave up his son. Because Peter says he's a lamb without blemish and without spot, doesn't he, in First Peter chapter 1. So that Old Testament practice and those Old Testament restrictions portrayed ahead of time what Christ was going to offer unto God when he offered himself. So yes, his perfect life, his sinless life, did qualify him to serve as the perfect sacrifice for sin. But there's nowhere in the Bible that the Bible talks about just moving that perfection of Christ over, transferring it and giving it to the the believer. Now, when the Bible talks about justification, it's talking about forgiveness. Justification is simply the granting of the status of a forgiven person through the mercy of God as a result of that person's obeying the gospel of Jesus Christ. So it's not a matter of taking the righteousness of Christ, the perfect righteousness, and that would have to do with the quality of it, and moving it over to another person. Now think about that just a minute. If Jesus died just for the elect, as this tenet of Calvinism alleges, what does that make of God? Respect of persons. On every one of these points, as I've been pointing out to you, there's a violation of divine impartiality. In the first place, and I'll just run over this very briefly, just so we'll have it fixed in our minds. In the first place, total depravity violates it because It says that there were a few who were exceptions to that. Jesus was an exception. He was not totally depraved. And not just Jesus, according to Catholicism. Catholicism says his mother and her mother. It goes back two generations before Jesus and says that the Immaculate Conception, the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, which, by the way, is fairly recent in Catholicism, 
It just came out uh, about a hundred years ago, I think it was. But that's that's the, that's a rather nifty or convenient way of of explaining how Jesus was an exception. But if he was, God was a respecter of persons because he allowed others to receive the contamination of Adam's sin, but not Jesus. So that would make him a respecter of persons. As far as unconditional election is concerned, there again there's a violation of divine impartiality because you can be elect, you can be one of God's elect, even though you don't have a desire to be. Election, according to Calvinism, took place without uh, without any view or respect to the person's desire or even without foreseeing any condition in the, on the person's part. And on the other hand, though, what about the unelect, the ones that they say are not the elect? What if they have the desire to be saved? What if they want to serve the Lord? That's right. Too bad. They're the reprobated ones. They're the ones failing to meet the test. So you see, it differentiates on an arbitrary basis. That makes God a respecter of persons. And then as we've seen, it does also because he died just for the elect. So there again, there's a violation of divine impartiality. And then on this point that we're covering today, uh, irresistible grace. When God bestows his grace... In irresistible fashion, that is in such a fashion that you cannot resist it. You're going to be saved whether you want to or not if you're one of the elect. Okay? You see what that does? That discounts free will or desire in the unelect. Just as I said it did earlier back there on the you. So there again it violates or, or makes God a respecter of persons. And then finally, as far as the acrostic is concerned, the perseverance of the saints. If you're one of the elect, you can commit the same sin that the unelect commits and get by with it. Because you're one of the elect. Now, if that doesn't make God a respecter of persons, what does it do? I'm, I'm unable to see how that wouldn't be the case myself. It violates the divine impartiality principle that we've been talking about this week. So all the way through the system, Romans 2.11, there is no respect of persons with God, stands out. If that's true, then this is false. Let God be true and every man a liar. Or, as the Proverbs writer said in Proverbs 30, Add thou not unto his word, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. That's right. Same principle that we find there in Romans, where he says, Let God be true. Well, let's think just for a few minutes about limited atonement. That Jesus died just for the elect. Besides making God a respecter of persons, there are some very clear passages that just don't, they're meaningless, really. It's hard to explain them if this doctrine is true. And let's think about them here. 
What about uh, Luke 2? We're, we're in the so-called Christmas season. Well, the announcement was made there. I bring to you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. Now think about that. Well, how could that be good news to the unelect? How could that be? What's that? That's right. A painful reminder. Here's somebody dying, but he's not dying for me. But this passage says it's for all people. And that's consistent with what the Bible everywhere teaches about the purpose and the scope of the benefits flowing from the death of Christ. Not only that one, but also John 3.16, the golden text of the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever... Now, now hold that in mind, because the rest of the verse is going to explain that. God's... The early part of the verse is going to explain that. God so loved whom? The world. The world. Who's the whosoever? Well, the Calvinist says it's the elect. No, it's just as wide as the world is. It's just as universal. The possibility of faith in Christ, just as universal as the first part, the full part of the verse is. He loved the world because he died to make it possible for anybody in the world to be saved. Not only John 3.16, but also Revelation 22, verse 17, one of the closing exhortations of the New Testament. Whosoever will, let him come and what? Take of the water of life freely. Okay, that's God's plan. He's not going to turn anybody back who's willing to meet the conditions of his will. Uh, in Romans chapter 11, Romans 11 at verse 3, that section of Romans that sometimes we think is a little bit difficult, there's some very clear statements made there, that he may have mercy upon all, and have I put down the wrong verse? I believe I have, let's see, would that maybe be 13? We'll get it later to find out just exactly what it is. But there's a verse there where Paul makes the statement that he may have mercy on all. That's, that's the exact wording of it, as I recall. And you might even see it as you're looking through your Bible there. But that's what the statement says. I just made a mistake in putting the passage there. Uh, in Romans 5.18, he talks about all men... The free gift, right at the end of the verse, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. Now notice that. And then in 1 Timothy chapter 3, excuse me, chapter 2, the Lord wants all men to be saved. And for that reason, he gave Jesus to die as a ransom for all. A ransom for all. Now think about that just a minute. If all have sinned, then all need to be ransomed. And the Lord made that possible. He he paid for our release. Our release 
from bondage to sin through the death of Jesus Christ. 32, okay. That probably is it. Yes, that's it. God has committed them all to disobedience that he may have mercy upon all. 32. Thank you, Jeff. In Hebrews 2, 9, Jesus tasted death, that is, he experienced death. He participated in death for all people. 1 John 2, 2. Uh, John says, he's the propitiation for our sins, but not for ours only. Also for the sins of the whole world. And of course, John 12, there on that occasion when some of the Greeks came to Jesus' disciples wanting uh, to see Jesus. They came saying, sir, we would see Jesus. And uh, Jesus, of course, uh, in a roundabout way, said, uh, uh, this is not the time. He said, uh, uh, the grain of wheat has to fall into the ground and it has to die. And then it sprouts and bears fruit. And he's talking about his own life. He's going to have to die. And he had set his face for Jerusalem. He uh, he was uh, busy right now. And this was not the time to take the message of the gospel, even the message of the cross, to the Greeks. Not that he was going to leave them out. They're coming in later. But he said, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw... All men, including you, including these Greeks who wanted to see him on that occasion. All right? And then two passages that I think are pretty significant. Romans 14 at verse 15. Right at the end of the verse. Of course, you understand, I think, something of the context here. Paul is cautioning the brethren not to practice that which would uh, which would cause another person to stumble. That is, would lead that person to practice it in violation of his or her conscience. That's what that's what he's talking about there when he's talking about putting the stumbling block. Not that you do something that the other just doesn't like for you to do, but you do it and it causes him to stumble in and do it himself against his conscience. Well he says in verse fifteen, do not destroy with food the one for whom Christ died. Now think about that. Can one for whom Christ died be destroyed? He says here. Now what does that do to the doctrine of election? If he's one that Christ died for, according to Calvinism, I'm not talking now according to what the Bible teaches, but according to Calvinism, who did he die for? The elect. All right, if one for whom Christ died can be destroyed, what can happen to the elect? That's right. That's right. Not only that one, but turn over to 1 Corinthians 8. 1 Corinthians 8 at verse 11. Something of the same situation, although a little bit different context in which these statements were made or these principles given. He said in verse 11, then, because of your knowledge shall the weak brother, what? Perish. For whom Christ died. There's the elect again, according to Calvinism. They thought, oh, that's the elect if Christ died for him. 
And yet Paul says he can perish. Paul says he can perish. There wouldn't be a way for accountants to even want to take these two verses because they're hung either way. Right. That's right. And they will undo their doctrine. Right. All right. I'm going to go now to Roman numeral number four. The irresistible grace. Because of time, and just move right on through. Irresistible grace. This, of course, is no longer called that uh, unless you're a strict Calvinist. Among the evangelicals, uh, it's called something else. What do they call it? Okay. Experience of grace or the direct uh, work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the believer. Uh, and, of course, they teach that that is necessary in order to wake that person up spiritually, revive him, and enable him to respond to Christ. And uh, along with that, there is this idea that I was talking about yesterday. You might remember the three imputations, the three instances, and I said the second one, the middle one, it slipped my mind, and I said I, I have it in my outline here somewhere, I'm pretty sure. Well, after I left here yesterday, I started thinking about that, and it came to me. You know how things like that are. But uh, here they are, right here. And this is, this is when it happens. That is, when the person is, is uh, transformed, quickened, awakened spiritually by the Holy Spirit. That's when these, at least the third imputation, takes place. But the first two have already occurred. The first one is that Adam's sin was imputed to all humanity. That's the first imputation that Calvinism alleges. There are three of them. Adam's sin to all humanity. The second one is that the, <clears throat> that, uh, the sin of humanity is then imputed to Christ. Now, that, uh, that, that makes for a convenient doctrine, but it's an untrue doctrine. The Bible no more teaches that one than it does the first one. The Bible does not teach that sin was actually moved over here and Jesus became guilty of our sins. It doesn't teach that. Now, I've been asked, well, what about passages like, uh, first, uh, excuse me, second Corinthians 5, that Christ became sin for us? Well, Paul is writing there uh, in respect to the sin offering. Christ became the sin offering, the sin bearer for us. He did not literally take upon himself sin. He did not become guilty of your sin and my sin and anybody else's sin. But he became the sin bearer, the sin offering. And uh, some translations even render it that way there in Second Corinthians chapter 5. But then the third imputation, that is that Christ's righteousness is imputed to the elect. Uh, this is an imputation that occurs in connection with this irresistible grace. This is a part of the infusing of grace. Uh, he also infuses uh, the righteousness of Jesus Christ according to Calvinism. But we've already seen 
that this idea violates the freedom of will. The freedom of uh, human responsibility. And even discounts the presence of it in one who is the unelect or one who is the reprobate. Now, this, this tells us that salvation occurs by means of a miracle. That is, the Holy Spirit isn't just guiding you through the Scripture. He's not just using the means of God's Word to guide you and to direct you to salvation in Christ. This says that by means of a miracle, the Holy Spirit comes in, sort of swoops down, and uh, saves you and leaves you with that better felt than told feeling, you know, which we hear sometimes people talk about. Uh, this is that experience, irresistible grace, or the direct converting power of the Holy Spirit. But the Bible shows us that miracles did not really save. Now, why do I say that? Well, I say it because that's what the Bible demonstrates to us. You take Saul of Tarsus. Were there miracles that happened in connection with his salvation? Yes. The Lord appeared to him on the road to Damascus. That's no ordinary experience. That's no natural or uh, naturally explained experience. That was a miracle. There Jesus was in heaven. And there Saul was on earth. And the Lord said, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Okay? There was Saul, the violent persecutor, the ardent opponent. But he turns around his life as a result of his seeing the Lord. He witnesses Jesus in all of his heavenly glory in that vision from heaven. And based upon what he sees, he changes his conviction. He now is convicted that Jesus is the Christ and that he's guilty, not just of persecuting his followers, but even of persecuting Jesus. And that's why Jesus said, why are you persecuting me? He now becomes convicted. And as a result of that change of conviction... He turns his life around. Well, did the miracle convert him? No, no. I'm not saying that it didn't have some part in it, in pointing him in the right direction. But the Lord said, Saul, well, Saul first said, Lord, what do you want me to do? And the Lord said, you go into the city, and there it will be told you what's appointed for you to do, or what you must do. And Ananias came. Ananias taught him, didn't he? He taught him the gospel. Now, what does 1 Corinthians say? 1 Corinthians 1 that we mentioned earlier this week. It pleased God through the foolishness of the preaching or the message preached to save them that really happened in Saul's case. Yes, the miracle played its part, but it just prepared the way, you might say. Now, he has to believe the message. Well, what about uh, Cornelius? Well, there was a miracle at both ends there. Right? 
there was the miracle with Cornelius. The Lord saying, Cornelius, send for Peter. You remember that? And then there was a miracle at Peter's end. Peter, there's some men here. You go with them. Okay, so there's miracle. But there again, the miracles didn't save him because the Bible says he will teach you words whereby you shall be saved and your family or your household. Okay? So the miracles brought the preacher and the sinner together. But the miracle didn't save him. He had to hear the word of the gospel. Uh, same thing. The Ethiopian treasury in Acts 8. There was a miracle. The Lord said, leave Samaria. And then he went down there and he didn't know who to look for. Till the Lord tapped him on the shoulder, so to speak, and said, go join yourself to this chariot. Then he knew the one he was to teach. Miracle, yes, two of them. But the miracle simply put the sinner and the preacher together. Same thing with the Philippian jailer in Acts 16. He still had to hear the word of the gospel. You know, Paul said to him, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved in your house. And then they taught him the word, the next verse says. And the word generated the faith, the belief. In other words, what they were doing, they were enabling him to believe. After they said believe, they enabled him to believe by teaching him. He then believed because he obeyed. And so the rest of the verse, or rather the rest of the account right at the end says, having believed in God. So miracle, yes, but there again, the earthquake and all of that, uh, that just served to get them together to create the situation where the gospel could be preached. Miracle didn't save in any of those cases. The gospel is the saving means. As we know from Romans 1, 1 Peter 1, Peter talks about the word of the truth of the gospel. Uh, I think that's a rather interesting passage. He said... Uh, there in First Peter chapter 1, verse 22, he said, Since you have purified your souls, how? In obeying the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born or begotten again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. And then he talks about the enduring quality of God's word, the permanence of it, in verses 24 and 25. But he ends verse 25 by saying this. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached unto you. So he said, you purified your souls in obedience to the truth. And he says, you've been born again begotten again by incorruptible seed, that is God's word, which is not the incorruptible seed, 
And then he said, this is the word which by the gospel has been preached unto you. So Paul very definitely says these people had become Christians and were remaining such because of their faithful adherence to God's word. And I say too that faith is the response that God desires in man. Faith that is in a comprehensive or inclusive sense. Uh, In Acts chapter 16, at verse 14, Acts 16 at verse 14, this of course is the case of Lydia. The Bible says, Now a certain woman named Lydia heard us. She was a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, who worshipped God. The Lord opened her heart to heed the things spoken by Saul or by Paul. Now, quite often... This verse will be even used by those who believe that the Lord miraculously, or the Spirit just miraculously, opens your heart. Well, I don't deny that the Lord opens people's hearts, but I want you to look at where it says that. You start back in verse 13, right at the end of the verse. We sat down and what? Spoke to the women who met there. All right, they're teaching them, speaking the gospel to them. Then what did Lydia do according to verse 14? We just read it. She heard. They spoke. She heard. Now, it was by that means that the Lord opened her heart. What the Lord did, that is, he's opening her heart, is said only as a result of what has already been said. They spoke and she heard. The Lord uses his word to open people's hearts. That's the point that we need to appreciate, of course, and try to teach people. And we talked about these other passages yesterday, most of them, like Acts 15, 7, there where the apostle said, uh, the Lord decided that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And then Romans 10, 17, and for that matter, the Great Commission. In Mark 16, Jesus showed, of course, that there would be two responses to the preaching of the message of the gospel. There'd be some who'd believe it. Now, that's the desired response. There'd be some who'd believe it and be baptized. There'd be others who would not believe. That's the undesired response. So faith, it needs to be emphasized not as something that God uh, supernaturally gives to you or drops in your lap, But it's man's response. And that's why every command to believe is directed to an individual. It's never directed to God. It's never said to be the responsibility of the Holy Spirit. Does the Lord open people's hearts by the Word so that they can believe? Yes, He does. The Word of God is of such nature that it can change a man's heart. It can produce faith where there was unbelief, but the Word is the vehicle. The Word is the means by which all of that is accomplished. Any questions? The best example to go to for to show that the miracles happened to the apostles. That's right. The apostles preached the word to the people gathered there on the day of Pentecost. They heard the word. They were convicted by the word. 
So it's like you're saying, a miracle brings the preacher and the lost together. Mm-hmm. And then once they heard the word, they say, well, what shall we do? They were instructed to believe and be baptized every one of them, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit was given after, not mm-hmm. before. But you can see what Calvinism does. Calvinism focuses totally on the sovereignty of God. That is what God does for you. It doesn't allow God to work through moral persuasion or through evidence or testimony for the purpose of changing hearts. It has to be done supernaturally. All right, and then finally, the perseverance of the saints. As I suggested yesterday, uh, if you're one of the elect, if you get it, talking about salvation, if you get it, you can't what? You can't lose it. That's right. So, if you want it, you can't get it unless you're the elect. But you don't get it then just because of wanting it. You get it because God wants you to have it. If you want it, you can't get it. Uh, if you get it, you can't lose it. If you lose it, you never had it. That's right. That's right. Just like Simon the sorcerer. Simon wasn't really saved. He wasn't really a Christian. That's what they say about him. Yes. Uh, this is the one that I'm most familiar with. Mm-hmm. Uh, because that's the, the experience I had mostly with the fact that well, they didn't have it. They lost it because they didn't have it. And they were holding so strongly to them. Well, and I never thought of this one. What if those who want it and they couldn't get it? And I think that the, uh, the answer I got was, well, nobody that is not an elect will want it. <laughs> because the Holy Spirit has to come first to them to want it. Yeah, yeah. That, that's a convenient doctrine. That's a convenient explanation. But it's based upon non-reality. Because the Bible never teaches that the Spirit does that. <laughs> it's unrealistic. Uh, think about the passages I've already introduced in Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8. In fact, I mentioned, yes, 1 Corinthians 8 down here, point C under Roman numeral 5. One for whom Christ died, that is an elect person, can perish. Okay. Now, according to them, he had to want it. If he, he's the one that Jesus died for, because that made him elect. And according to them, regardless of what he might do, he's still the elect, and God's going to save him. Or as some of them say, when God does his work, he does it right. He does it well. He saves him forever, regardless of what might intervene between then and the end of his life. But here he's perishing, according to Paul's statement. So that just... Messes up the playhouse, doesn't it? <laughs> well, in John chapter 15, when Jesus was talking to disciples, I want you to notice that. To disciples. And these were not just pretend disciples that he's addressing in this section on the vine and the branches. These were disciples who were branches connected to the vine. Now, I want you to notice that. Not pretend disciples. 
These were the elect, according to their definition. But what did Jesus warn them about? What can happen to the branch? That's right. That's right. That's right. That's what? It's work in the sense that it's a work of obedience, a work of faith. Yes, it's a response to God's will, just like faith is. That's right. Just like, just like in Galatians chapter 5, this might be a good time to bring that one in. Galatians 5, Paul talks about their falling away from grace. Well, you can't fall away from something unless you've been there. Uh, I heard a fellow in a debate one time back in the 1960s illustrate that. He said, oh, that's like, that's like this fellow that was climbing up a ladder and his wife Grace was up there in the window. He was getting up there, to, but he fell before he got up to her. He fell away from Grace. <laughs> that's right. Now, that's straining it, isn't it? That's a convenient illustration. It says exactly what he believes. But it doesn't say what the rest of that book says. The rest of that letter to the Galatians shows that they were already in grace. <laughs> All right. First uh, Corinthians 9, 24, down through 10, 12. This is a great passage. I, I just wish we had time to develop it this morning, but we don't. But I want you to notice what Paul does, just basically, the basic structure of this. Beginning in 9.24, going through the end of that ninth chapter, Paul's focus is on himself. He says, uh, don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the crown? And then he uses himself as the example of that. He said, uh, I run, verse 26. And then verse 27, I discipline my body. Why? Lest I myself should become disqualified or a castaway. Now that's our word that we've been using earlier, reprobate. It means failing to meet the test. And really, it was a word used to describe, for instance, a, a pot or a vessel that had sprung a leak. It was no longer useful, like a bucket you might use to carry water in to the flower bed. All right, uh, once it springs a leak, you can't use it for that. You have to throw it away. It's a castaway. Fails to meet the test. That's this word right here in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 27. But now having said that about himself, in chapter 10, he goes ahead and gives another illustration. He illustrates it then from the perspective of ancient Israel. And he tells all the wonderful advantages they'd enjoyed in those early verses. But then he goes ahead to show that with many of them, God was not well pleased. And he talks about their different sins, of course. Uh, they simply failed to believe God. They failed to trust Him. They failed to obey Him or hold fast to Him. And you know what he says or does from that? When he finishes that, he says, All these things happen to them for what? as an example, and they're written for whose admonition? Our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands, what? Take heed, lest he fall. That's right. So Paul says, I can fall. I'm talking about Paul. 
Paul said, Israel did fall. And Paul says, any person can fall. Just mark it down. And I've been asked questions in recent years. Why do you think there's so many preachers becoming unfaithful? Maybe unfaithful to their wives. That's happened in a number of instances. Why do you think so many elders are doing things that... And I always come back to this verse. I said they're failing to take heed lest they fall. That's the only way I know to explain it. They're just failing to take heed. And that can happen to me, brother. I need to be careful. And you need to be careful, too. And I said of all those who have done that, have preached in time past, very much like this talking now, how right. the person do that? Right. What is it saying? More involved in preaching, isn't it? Have practice. Uh, I have a whole string of passages here, not even all that could be put here, from the Hebrew letter, demonstrating that a person can fall or a saved person can be lost. Now, you know in the Hebrew letter that he's talking to Christians. He's talking to genuine converts. Look at how he addresses them, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 3. If I can get over there, I'm having trouble turning the pages this morning. Hebrews chapter 3. What does he call them at the beginning of the chapter? Holy brethren. And then he says, partakers of the what? Heavenly calling. Look at that. And yet he says to them, when you get down there to about verse 13... Exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Okay, 18 and 19, referring to ancient Israel again. They didn't enter into his rest. Why? They did not obey. But look at verse 19. We see that they could not enter in because of what? Unbelief. There's not that much difference between what it says in one and what it says in the other. To fail to obey God is to fail to believe Him. And to fail to believe Him is to fail to obey Him. They're just used interchangeably there in those instances, in those verses. And then Second Corinthians, or rather Second Peter 2. The condition of people who were once saved. That's very clearly depicted in those verses for us. Well, our time is just about up. Do you have a final question or so? Have I left anything dangling, anything unclear through this week? Well, it's been good for me. And I, as I said earlier, I appreciate your faith and your zeal and look forward to being with you at some time in the future, maybe. May the Lord bless you as you go back.